Well, there are people in Ranao, we're still here. And we're going to continue today with our uh, series on the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 13. So if you have your hard copy Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. If you have your soft copy Bible, scroll with me to Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to start looking at that uh, this week. Now, Matthew 13, a bit of background. We've seen what Jesus has been doing in declaring the kingdom of heaven. He started off by saying the kingdom of heaven is here. And then he started doing some miracles, and then he talks then for three chapters uh, in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, talking about the values of the kingdom, talking about what the kingdom is about. After that, Jesus then continued on with all the miracles and the uh, signs and wonders, and, and, and people were flocking to see what Jesus was doing and what he was saying in the process, what he was showing us as far as who this king of the kingdom of heaven is. When you come to Matthew 13, he resumes teaching. But the uniqueness of Matthew 13 is that he doesn't teach the way he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches using a particular tool that we call parables. And so we're going to look specifically, when we look at Matthew 13, at parables, why Jesus speaks in parables, and what we can learn from him speaking in parables, as well as one parable that we will look at, the parable of the sower. So if you're there in Matthew 13, I'm going to read Matthew 13 from verse 1 to verse 23. And if you don't have a Bible with you, it's on the screens, um, and, and you can flow along with me, all right? Matthew chapter 13, verse 1 to 23, the parable of the sower. The same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came to him, came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, 
and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That, or this, is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now, what this passage gives us is a parable and the meaning to it. And in a sense, nothing much is left in terms of deciphering or understanding the parable except to apply it. How can I be good soil? But in between the parable and the explanation comes an interesting digression. To answer one important question, why does Jesus speak in parables. Why can't Jesus speak like most preachers regularly do? And over the years, there are some of these common explanations or exa uh, explanations I've heard, and, and so I'm just share that with you. Jesus spoke in parables because perhaps it helps the people understand by using references that they can relate to. In fact, they also, this, these people who also tell me this explanation tell me that preachers should do the same as well. And so, we should be preaching using references that you can relate to. Another explanation is it engages people with stories and illustrations. Because if you're like Paul, and you preached through the night, people fall asleep. And if you know that story, this man falls asleep and falls off the third floor and actually dies. Um, but of course, by God's power, he is resurrected once again. I hope that none of you fall from the third floor as I preach today. Thirdly, the last explanation is it hides secret messages so that certain people won't get it and certain people do. And apparently that's what the rabbis used to do in those days. So imagine, if you will, that you're one of the Israelites. You're not a disciple. And a friend comes up to you and says, hey, have you heard about this man named Jesus? Or of course, if you're a Jew, a Yeshua. And, and uh, he's, he's been doing some amazing things. He's been signs, miracles, healings, wonders. He's been teaching a lot of interesting countercultural things we've never heard before. He doesn't talk like the rabbis do. He seems to have authority that, that the rabbis don't, well, we don't really look at them with that kind of authority. Why don't we go? And he's at the Sea of Galilee right now, which is not too far away. Let's go and hear him speak. And you're like, okay, I've got some time. Let's go and hear him speak. And you tag along with him, and you're by the Sea of Galilee, and you notice him sitting at the shore. He's sitting at the shore, and he notices you. 
And not just does he notice you, he notices all of you. And so all of you are, are a bit of a crowd too many. He gets up from his sitting by the shore, says, okay, this is a bit too many people. Sitting here is not the best way to deliver a message. He gets onto a boat, sits on that boat, and then you come nearer to the edge of the water, and he delivers his message. And his message is essentially this. A sower went out to sow, and the seeds fall on four types of soil. One is the path. The seeds that fall on the path, the birds come, take it away, and it's eaten. The seed that falls on rocky ground uh, with less soil spring up quickly and then wither away because it was sun-scorched and there were no roots for water. The third soil is the soil that had thorns, and so it grew up with the thorns, and then the thorns choke the, word, uh, the seed, and it dies. It becomes unfruitful. And the last one is good soil. And the seed falls on good soil, and it reaps a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. Hey, I came to listen to a rabbi, not Agriculture 101. And you know that that's for sure what they were thinking because the disciples immediately asked Jesus, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Because they know Jesus was trying to say something without saying something. And so to be fair to Jesus, they, they understand the concept of parables because this is not the first time a parable has ever been shared. If you remember back in the old days, and not our old days, their old days. Their old days, in the time of the prophet Nathan and King David, the prophet Nathan, in rebuking David for his adultery, came to David with a parable. Now, David didn't know it was a parable. He thought it was a true story. And so he got so mad at this person, who had, his rich man who had taken this poor man's lamb and says, this man deserves to die. And then Nathan points his finger at him and goes, you are that man. And then David realizes, Nathan just used the parable and caught him. And so parables were not uncommon. And disciples in this case know that Jesus wasn't trying to teach agriculture. He's a carpenter. And so they realized that Jesus was trying to say something and they wanted to know why he's doing it this way and what he was trying to say. And so he, they asked him, why are you telling, why are you speaking in parables? Now, what are parables? I've whittled it down to a couple of characteristics that will help us understand what parables are. And then when we look at what parables are and we understand what it is, then we see why Jesus said what he said in terms of both explaining why he spoke in parables and what the parable of the sower means. Firstly, parables are not allegories. Now, if you're familiar with literature, allegories are stories where everything in the story, every detail, has a particular significance or resemblance to our lives. So, for in, in fact, so what allegories do is they mirror what goes on in real life into a story. So, give, give me give you an example, very close to home. Seven years ago, SIBKL produced a musical called Everworld. How many of you were in SIBKL and you watched Everworld? All right, this is a very growing church. Now, I stand on the very stage that Everworld was produced on. 
Um, and so those of you who have not seen Everworld, um, this is the stage we produced it on. All of you who listened to my message in BY yesterday, that was not the stage. This amazing stage that God has given us was where Everworld was produced. Now, uh, in fact, the lead uh, female character then became a pastor. <laughs> now, the story about Everworld is this, essentially this. It's an allegory. Why do I say it's an allegory? The story behind, or the story of Everworld is a story of villagers in a little village who have a past, who each of them have a past that they'd rather hide away from everybody else. But they receive an invitation to a beautiful country that they've never seen, but they've always heard about. A country full of land, a land full of hope and joy and love. And that place was called Everworld. The king of Everworld has been so silent for many years, and now, suddenly, this invitation to all the villagers has come. And the villagers, therefore, set out to Everworld, but the journey leads them through different trials, each of them bringing up their hidden past and having to deal with their past on their journey to Everworld. Like if you've not seen Everworld, I'm not going to spoil the story for you. Get it on DVD. We'll see if it comes on the 25th anniversary. But um, if, you if, if you don't have the DVD, I have one right here. You can always come around and borrow it. But uh, no, so no spoilers for, for each one of you. Did they reach Everworld? Did they not? Get it now. DVD. Blu-ray. But Everworld is essentially an allegory because the characters... The journey they go through, and even the city of Everworld, represents us, our journeys, and the kingdom of heaven. In essence, every part of the story has a resemblance that we can draw to our own reality. That's an allegory. But parables are not allegories. Parables are different. Parables are shared in order to make things simple and easy to understand. They have simple meanings and simple lessons. The references there are not meant to point out some sort of reality or have any particular significance spiritually or to your own lives. It's just there to help you understand the lesson that is trying to be shared. So for example, if you look at the parable of the sower, the path that the seeds fall on does not refer to a die-hard atheist who will reject everything you say. No, Jesus was not referring to that. The thorns that, this, that, that was on the third type of soil, the thorns, does not refer to the unbelieving friend who has been your classmate for the past four years in school, growing up with you, and then in the fourth year or the fifth year, just before you sit for your SPM, and then he suddenly chokes your faith. No, parables are not allegories. That is not what it refers to. Most, if not all, the parables have just one lesson to share. But the thing about parables is this. It has a lesson, but that lesson has a profound impact. It has a profound impact. So how do we look at parables? Let's think of parables like they're riddles or puzzles or jokes. And so parables can be treated that way because in Aramaic, the word that was used when they asked Jesus, why do you speak in parables? The word parable is methal. 
And methal is a general term that is used to categorize parables, riddles, puzzles, jokes. And so it has a particular characteristic that categorizes it under methal. Now, I didn't study stand-up comedy, so I'm going to use words that are my own description. But every parable, riddle, puzzle, or joke would have generally two aspects or two characteristics. First of all, they have a point of reference, and second of all, they have a punchline. A point of reference and a punchline. I'm going to go with a simple example. I'm going to tell you a joke. If you get it, laugh however much you want. But don't tell anybody, don't explain the joke to anyone. If you don't get it, it's okay. I'll explain it to you eventually. It may not be as funny by the time you hear it, but you'll get it. All right? Are you ready? Okay? So if you, if you get it, right, laugh however much you want. Just don't explain the joke to anyone. A man walked into a bar. Ouch! Okay, so here's the, here's the little uh, question I want to ask you. How many of you got the joke? Okay. How many of you did not get the joke? Okay, it's all right. There's, there's no shame in the house of God. Please keep your hands up for a while, for a while. Just keep your hands up for a while. There's, there's no shame in the house of God. We, we love you. In fact, here's, here's what I want to tell you. All those who raise your hands, when it comes to the parables of Jesus, you represent every single person in this hall. That's you. So those of you who got the joke, fine. You get the point of reference. You get the punchline here. But it doesn't mean that you get the point of reference and the punchline in every parable that Jesus shared. In fact, we're probably a lot like those who did not get the joke. So there are three responses when a joke is shared. First of all, they get it and they laugh. They get the point of reference. They get the punchline. Hence the reaction. Laughter. Then there are those who, second group, they get it, but they don't laugh, like Pastor Isaac. <laughs> wow, what a pun. Wow, all right? Now, it's because they get the point of reference, they get the punchline, it's just not funny enough. Right, it doesn't just, you know, it doesn't evoke you know, the, 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 the joy and the reaction and the laughter, it's just not good enough. He hears too many jokes. So perhaps you've heard it before, and, and therefore it's not funny. Or you could be like my daughter. So when I tell jokes and he goes, come on, Dad, it's not funny. I don't like your dad jokes. It's so lame. That's the second group of people. The third group of people, you don't get it. You miss the punchline. So you miss the point of reference, you miss the punchline, and you don't get it. So for those of you who raised your hands and said, I didn't get it, here's the explanation. The point of reference here is the bar. Often we immediately associate it with F&B. So this guy goes into a bar to get a drink. However, that bar is not related to F&B. That bar is what we usually refer to as a long, rigid piece of wood, metal, or something similar, typically used as an obstruction. And so the word ouch, the punchline, 
tells you that the bar you thought was the bar was not the bar. It was the bar. Ouch. Here's the thing. The parables told in Jesus' time had many points of reference that the people would understand in their time. But oftentimes, it gets lost on us who listen to that same parable 2,000 years later in a totally different context than the Israelites did. So just like those who didn't get the joke, we often don't get the full picture of the parable until we study it in their context and find similar points of reference to ours. Give you an example. Remember the parable of the unmerciful servant? It's a very familiar passage to a lot of us, and it really talks about the magnanimity of God's mercy for us. Right? In Matthew 18, the story is told, or the parable is told of a master who forgives his servant, let's call him Mr. A. All right? The master forgives Mr. A of a debt of 10,000 talents. And then Mr. A, who has been forgiven of his debt, the debt is totally cancelled, um, this, despite the fact that there's a huge punishment over it, despite the fact that it's 10,000 talents, he goes out to Mr. B, who owes him 100 denarii, and then says, you still owe me this 100 denarii, and I, I'm not going um, to let you go free. I'm going to send you to prison because you owe me this 100 denarii. And so he does. And the people, the, the, the fellow servants who had seen this conversation between Mr. A and Mr. B, brought the same story back to the master and said, Master, I know you forgave Mr. A, but Mr. A didn't forgive Mr. B. And so the master gets angry, riled up, and calls Mr. A back to him and said, I forgave you your 10,000 talents, but you did not forgive Mr. B. Despite the mercy that I've poured on you, I'm going to send you to prison until you pay off the debt of 10,000 talents. Now, we immediately assume that 10,000 talents is obviously more than 100 denarii because that's the point of the parable. But how many of you actually sat down and tried to figure out how wide the gap of 10,000 talents and 100 denarii is? Because that's the point of reference that they had. And if you see the gap, maybe the understanding of the magnanimity of God's mercy for us will become very different from what you see it as now. And so if you have your Bible with a footnote on it, go look at the footnote. What does 10,000 talents refer to? 10,000 talents refers to, or one talent refers to 20 years of a laborer's wage. A hundred denarii, or one denarii, refers to one day of a laborer's wage. And so I'm gonna do the math for you, because lawyers know how to do math very well. 10,000 talents is equivalent to 200,000 years of a laborer's wage. 100 denarii is 100 days' worth of a laborer's wage. You all still in Jewish economy at the moment? If you compare 100 denarii to 10,000 talents, 100 denarii is zero 0.00014% of 10,000 talents. 0.00014% of 10,000 talents. Now, let me make it simpler and put it into a Malaysian context. 
If a laborer's daily wage is 36 ringgit and 40 cents a day, if, all right, if a laborer's wage is 36 ringgit and 40, cent, uh, 40 cents a day, 100 days worth of a laborer's wage is 3,640. So that's about three months plus of um, uh, a laborer's daily wage. Now, if somebody owes 3,640 ringgit, someone out there owes somebody 2.6 billion ringgit. Some of you are laughing because you get the point of reference. 3,640 ringgit, 2.6 billion ringgit. If you want to do the zeros, 2, 6, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0. Compared to 3,640 ringgit. Mr. A gets forgiven. Wow, I want that kind of master too. I want the kind of master where I owe him money, but he's so merciful, so gracious to me. He says, it's okay, I'm going to cancel that debt. Live free. Mr. B, however, gets thrown into prison. What? What a ridiculous, unmerciful Mr. A. He was forgiven of 2.6 billion. He can't even forgive a guy of 3,640 ringgit. Which brings me to my next point. Parables are meant to draw a response. This is very different from a preacher preaching the regular sermons you hear. Yes, we'd like you to respond. But there are times in which the manner that the preaching is done allows you to rest in the presence of God. Or just sometimes doesn't move you in any way. But parables are designed specifically to draw a response because it has a point of reference that they're familiar with and a punchline. Nathan, in the story of King, da in King David's story, pulls off a parable and gets King David so mad, so riled up. He says, this man in the parable deserves to die. And then Nathan pulls off the punchline and goes, you are that man. And the message sticks like a knife in his heart. When you understand the point of references, for example, in the parable of the prodigal son, and you're like that person who's so far away from God, so, so yearning to, to come back to the, to, to the love of God, but you feel so unrighteous, so distant. The story of the parable of the prodigal son, in fact, the parable of the prodigal father, would appeal to you and speak to you and assure you that God's love for you is always there and always merciful and always gracious to not just love you, but reinstate your identity, your sonship in Him. But if you're the man who thinks you're the righteous one, followed all the laws, served God, and despised your wayward brother, you're like the people who would listen to that parable and talk to each other and go, he's talking about us. I don't like the way he's saying things. He's pointing things about us that, that, that are uh, painful, that, that I hate, that I don't agree with. He's talking about us as well. And that's what we sense the Pharisees and the teachers of the law saying when Jesus was talking about the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. 
So Jesus spoke in parables so that he wanted his listeners to catch something and to respond. He wasn't speaking in parables to hide things from them. The point of the parables is so that they catch it and they respond. But if that's the case, why is it that in Matthew 13, Jesus says that the secrets of the kingdom are given to some, but not to others? It boils down to how you read the quote from Isaiah that Jesus quotes, the passage from Isaiah that Jesus quotes. Do you read it as one of judgment or as a plea? As a plea. I want to submit to you that Jesus used that passage from Isaiah as a plea. Hear me out. He's looking at the Israelites. Some are Pharisees, some are teachers of the law, some are his disciples. And there's a huge gap between this group of people and the disciples, between those who want to hear and learn and those who want to hear and judge or don't even want to hear at all. And to this group, Jesus says, even what you have, the law and the prophets, even that will be taken away from you. That is why I speak to you in parables. You see it, you hear it, you get the point of reference, you get the punchline, and you still don't heed. You don't obey. What Isaiah said of you is true. You will hear, but you will never understand. You see, but you will never perceive. And why? Because you've made your hearts grow dull. Because otherwise, you will be able to see, you will be able to hear, you will be able to understand, and I will heal you. The message paraphrase puts the Isaiah passage this way. I don't want Isaiah's forecast repeated all over again. Your ears are open, but you don't hear a thing. Your eyes are awake, but you don't see a thing. The people are blockheads. They stick ears, they stick your fingers in their ears so they won't have to listen. They screw their eyes shut so they won't have to look, so they won't have to deal with me face to face and let me heal them. Then Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, blessed are your eyes, for they see. Blessed are your ears, for they hear. Why? I put it down to one factor. Hunger. Hunger. They long to know. They long to understand. They long to learn from Jesus. That's why they asked him, why do you speak in parables? I want to know what you're trying to say. That's why Jesus compares them in that verse to the righteous people and the prophets of old who longed to hear, but it was not their time. Who longed to see, but did not get to see it. And he says, your eyes are blessed because you get to see it. Your, eye, your ears are blessed because you get to hear it. Hunger. Do you yearn for God, for His Word? Do you yearn to understand it? Do you long to see the Word of the Kingdom become alive in your life? Do you long to step out in faith, knowing the Word that says, I am with you? Do you long to live in victory through Jesus Christ? Do you want God to remove the blindness and the deafness of our hearts? Hunger. The disciples had that, and their eyes and their ears were blessed. 
The big question is, in other words, do you want to be good soil that the seed, the word of the kingdom, falls on? You see, I think that's why the discussion about parables, why Jesus speaks in parables, and the parable of the sower comes together. Now that you know why I speak in parables, what are you going to do about it? Once you've got the points of reference and the punchline, what is your response going to be? So the parable of the sower is one of two parables where Jesus actually explains the meaning of the parable. Parable of the sower and the other is the parable of the weeds, also in Matthew 13. So we don't have to do any deciphering, so to speak. We just need to get the lesson and respond. And so we're going to look at the parable of the sower. Very simply through, the parable of the sower has two constants, like all of science and agriculture, two constants. And the constant, the first of all is the sower, and that refers to God, and the seed that refers to the word of the kingdom. This is the word of the kingdom of heaven. This is the good news. This is the good news of what the kingdom of heaven is. It is not just the good news, but it's also an invitation, an invitation to be a part of it, an invitation to be a part of Everworld, a land, a life of hope, of love, of joy, of freedom, and of power, of authority in Christ. That's the word that has been sown in Ranau. That's the word that we're always sowing when we go back to our marketplaces or to our classrooms and to the people around us. We're sowing through God, sorry, God through us, sowing that seed of the word of the kingdom into many, many lives. The variable though, the variable is the soil. And so there are four types of soil. What I've done is I've summarized it so that you get to see a, a, a big, full picture as to what the soil is, what the outcome is, and what Jesus says it means. I'll run it through with you. The seed that falls on the path gets devoured by birds, meaning the evil one comes, snatches away what was sown. It doesn't even root itself. Obviously, there is also no fruit. Second soil is the rocky ground. There is less soil. It springs up quickly, but then it gets sun-scorched. And when it gets sun-scorched, because there are no roots for water, for nutrition, it withers away. The meaning, these are those who hear the word, receives it with joy, but it doesn't get rooted. It endures for a while, but then it falls away when faced with persecution or tribulation. The third soil is a soil where the seed grows up among thorns. And the thorns grow up together with it and eventually choke the growth. These are people who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word and makes it unfruitful. The last one is good soil, and it produces grain, 104, 64, 34. These are those who hear the word, understand it, bears fruit, and yields 104, 64, 34. I told you points of, uh, parables have points of references, and it, meant, it was meant to draw a response. So when Jesus was explaining this parable to the disciples, at least the disciples, what would their response have been? What would your response have been? 
If he says, the seed falls on the path, and this refers to the word of the kingdom that falls on, 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 on the path, and the evil one comes and snatches it away, everybody goes, no, God, that, I don't want to be that kind of soil. I don't want to be the soil where even if the word of the kingdom falls, it's so taken away, and I have no chance to let it get rooted or let it bear fruit. No, God, that's not me. Second soil, the soil that falls on rocky ground with very little soil, springs up but straight away withers away when there is persecution or tribulation. Oh, no, Lord, no, 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 that's not me. That's, I don't want to be that kind of soil. Though everybody may fall away, I will never fall away. Some of you got that reference. Peter said that. Okay, good. What about the soil where there are thorns? And when the growth comes up, the thorns choke the growth. Those who hear the word understand it, but then the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke it, and it becomes unfruitful. No, God. No, God. I will not be drawn away by the cares of the world. I will not be drawn away by the deceitfulness of riches. No, God. I don't want to be. Okay. Fourth soil. Good soil. Soil where the growth gets rooted and it bears fruit. A hundredfold. 64, 34, and disciples go, I want to be good soil. I want to be good soil. Friends, let's be good soil. Where the seed, the word of the kingdom, grows and, draw, and, and grows roots inside of us and then begins to bear fruit of 30, 60, 100 fold. The parable isn't just there to tell you facts of reality. The parable isn't there to just tell you Agriculture 101. It was meant to prod you, meant to ask you, what soil do you want to be? What is good soil? What is good soil? Good soil has two aspects, just drawing from the parable itself. Good soil, firstly, allows the word to get rooted, allows the word of the kingdom, allows the word of God to get rooted deep inside of us. What does that mean? That means we don't just hear it. We don't just receive it with joy and say, yes, the moment you accepted Christ, say, yes, thank you, Jesus, and that's great. But we let it get rooted now. We let it grow roots inside of us. We think about it. We talk about it. We read it. We worship God for it. We, we long to know God more. We build upon what we've heard. We've we begin to put it into practice. We begin to obey. We begin to exercise it in faith. We stand amazed at God's grace over us day in, day out. And we're saying, God, what you have done for me, I'm going to let it grow deeper inside of me. Let it stick inside of me so that when persecution and tribulation come, I know my God and I know what he's done for me. And I know that I stand firm and secure in the God who loves me, who cares for me, who calls me his own, and who calls me to a life of, of, of freedom and of power and authority in him. That's the word that gets rooted in good soil. We don't want to be the soil that only allows the word to sprout and grow for a short time. Paul says in Ephesians, he says, he prays that we be rooted and grounded in love, to have strength to comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, the width, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God, rooted 
and grounded. Rooted and grounded. So continue to yearn for revelation. Continue to yearn for the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life to reveal the Word of God to you, to guide you in all truth. You know, when Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount, He ended this. He ended by saying this. There are two kinds of people when they hear the Word. There are the group that hears it and then puts it into practice. And there's a group that hears it and does not. The group that hears it and puts it into practice sets, is like a man who builds his house on a rock, on firm foundation. So no matter what may come, storm, hail, the house that is built on a firm foundation stands. But the man who hears the word and does not practice it is like a man who builds his house on the sand. And when the storms come and the waves hit, that house will fall. Friends, we've got to get the word of the kingdom deeply rooted inside of us, that it becomes firm foundation for each and every one of us, that when the storms come, when persecution, tribulation come, we stand strong. I'm just moved by a story I heard or I read sometime last year of a man who, uh, not in Malaysia, but a man who was persecuted and sent to prison because of his faith. And in his, in his moment in prison, and when I, say, when I say moment, I mean years in prison, he always had this one practice he would always do. He would always worship God aloud in his cell, always lifting up his face in a particular direction and saying, God, you are good. He sings a song from his own heart. They call it the heart song in their own language. And he would worship God and worship God. And, and, and the people, not just the prison cell, uh, not just the prisoners, but the prison guards would listen to it. And, and they would stop him. They would try and beat him and, and put him into all sorts of punishment just so that he stops. But you know that one day when he was supposed to be executed, they dragged him out down the corridor of the prison. He was still worshiping God. He was still singing that same song he sang every single day. And then the prison itself, all the prisoners began to sing along with him. There was like a choir of worship to God. And then the guards looked at him and said, what kind of God do you worship? They did not execute him. He was released a couple of days later to tell this story because he's rooted himself in Christ. He's rooted the word of the kingdom, the invitation to the kingdom of power, of hope, of joy, despite what the world can throw at him, stays rooted and he bears fruit. Imagine the choir in prison. It bears fruit. The second one is this. Good soil receives the word of the kingdom as of prime importance above all else above all else, above the cares of the world, above the deceitfulness of riches, it will not choke the word. Our pursuit for good grades, for comfort, for financial security, a good job, a good reputation on social media will not take away our love and passion for the word of God and for his kingdom. I want to share a story to you. I serve in Life Generation, 
the campus students ministry. And, and just uh, a couple of years ago, one of, uh, one of the newcomers who had come to Life Gen accepted Christ, became a believer. We were so glad some of his friends had been with him for a while and invited him. Um, his girlfriend was already a believer, and, and so when he became uh, a believer, we were overjoyed. A year later, he gets a, start, he gets a chance to study overseas. After that one year, he comes back, and it was in, this was in 2019, mid-2019. He comes back and talks to me and says, Wayan, um, I plan to continue the rest of my studies back in Malaysia, or at least the next year back in Malaysia. I said, bro, why? I mean, you get a chance to study overseas, and a lot of people don't get that chance, and they would love to, myself included. But you get a chance to study overseas, why not continue the rest of it overseas? He says that when he was overseas, the world that he was in, the environment he was in, the things that were going on around him was beginning to be like thorns that were growing up and choking his faith. New believer, mind you, choking his faith. And he realized that he was growing more and more distant from God, growing more and more away from God because of the, the world that he was in. There was no Christian community that he was close to that would relate with him. And, and, and just the community that he was with was beginning to choke his faith. Was, he was beginning to lose it. And so after the first year of studies, he decided, I will continue the rest of it in Malaysia. I would give it up because what is of prime importance for me is the Word of God. It is the Word of the Kingdom. It is my faith that I want to grow and let it grow rooted without the thorns. I want to be good soil. I don't know what it is in your situation. And it can be anything. Jesus only gave two examples, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. But anything that places itself above your passion for God and His kingdom is going to begin to choke it. And my encouragement, if we want to be good soil, is to place the word of the kingdom above all else. Our passion for God, our passion for His kingdom, our passion in seeing God glorified in our lives, in this country, in the nations of the world, put above, put above all else. The parable doesn't end there. It ends with a punchline. We haven't even gotten there yet. But the punchline is this. A hundredfold. I don't know about you, whether you're involved in agriculture, you have an orchard, or you just plant a little tree and in, in front of your house. But in my experience, if I've planted a mango tree like my dad used to, we don't, in one year, get 30 mangoes. How many of you, you've planted something, you got 34 in one year? Not even 30. All right. How many of you get 60 fold? What about 100 fold? Do you understand what this punchline means to them? It was a miracle. It's impossible. If Jesus says you are good soil and you bear 100 fold, I'm like, no way. That's awesome. That's some miracle fertilizer you put right there. And here's the thing. There is a point of reference for a hundredfold. 
In Genesis 26, the story is told of Isaac who sowed seed, not Pastor Isaac, but Isaac who sowed seed and in one year reaped a hundredfold. And in verse 13, it says, the Lord blessed him and he became so wealthy, very, very rich within one year. Now, this kind of abundance is not the result of hard work. It's not the result of miracle fertilizer. It's the result of God at work. That's the reference point they had for 104. Here's the miracle. When you're good soil, when you let the word of the kingdom grow rooted deep in you, when you value the kingdom of heaven over everything else and you long for it, not only will you bear fruit, you will, God will take that seed and make it abundantly fruitful in your life. What is this fruit? Your spiritual authority and influence. Where you are at, God is going to increase dramatically your spiritual authority and influence. Your giftings and the impact it has will be so expansive. P-A-N, expansive to many, many lives. Your outflow of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, all that gift, the fruit of the Spirit will come out of you so abundantly. People are going to be so blessed by it. And they're going to come to God because of that. People are, not, people are going to look at you and go, look, um, this is not just a personality thing. You know, he's not just so patient above everybody else. No, this is really patient, man. This is a really loving man. This is a really encouraging man. And it cannot be explained just by who you are. It's no longer just about the good soil. It's about good soil in the hands of a sower. That's the reason why I think it is entitled the parable of the sower. Not the soil, the sower. Because at the end of the day, abundant fruitfulness comes when we as good soil let the word take root in us and God makes it bountiful. We've been given the seed, the word of the kingdom. My plea to all of us, let's get the word rooted deep inside of us. Let's value the kingdom of heaven above everything else and God will bring the fruitfulness. Can I invite all of us to just stand? We're going to worship God and ask God to, to, to mold us and to make us His vessel as we learn to get the Word rooted deep inside of us, as we learn to be good soil and we learn to value the kingdom above all else. I'm not going to do an altar call where you have to come out front because I think this message speaks or is meant for all of us. The question to each one of us is what kind of soil do you want to be? And I want to encourage you, let's all be good soil. So if you want to be good soil, if you want to let the Word of God get rooted in you, if you want to value the kingdom above all else, can I invite you as we worship God to place your hand, whichever it is, over your heart because that's where the soil is, your heart. And say, God, I want to be good soil. I want to be good soil. And let's worship God together. Amen.